This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. A few years ago, when I was a house officer in Ireland, I remember my consultant saying, any older person who comes here with shortness of breath, we just say that they have COPD and give them standard treatment. But we don't think enough about the diagnosis, about what tests to do, about what newer treatments are coming available and how we might prevent further exacerbations. Things have improved since then, but there is still variability and so room for further improvement. And the good news is that we have an expert at hand to guide us. Dr. Mike Morgan is National Clinical Director for Respiratory Services in England and is also a practising physician. So, Dr. Morgan, you're welcome, and let's start off. Could you tell us what exactly is COPD? Well, uh, thanks, Kieran. Certainly things have changed since, since your day. Um, we know a lot more about this condition and how to manage it. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is, is a rather clumsy term for a number of different conditions which affect our airways. These in, include small airways disease, what used to be called chronic bronchitis, and emphysema are different pathologies which result in progressive and irreversible airway obstruction. This results in a loss of measured lung function, as the title suggests, but underneath that there are a number of different pathologies that affect the substance of the lung, the airways, and the blood vessels that run through it. So it's a very complicated condition in in many ways, not only in its pathophysiology, but also in its inheritance and its consequences. Lung function normally uh, reaches a peak at about the age of 25 and then declines steadily with age. So everybody would develop airway obstruction in time if they lived long enough. Unfortunately, some people are vulnerable to accelerated loss of airway function and develop symptoms of breathlessness and uh, cough, perhaps, in their lifetime. And this may result in disability or, in a small proportion of cases, in, in death. Most people reach their peak at about the age of 25. Unfortunately, some people will never get to that peak because they had early life experiences which damaged their lungs. So prematurity, poor nutrition in childhood, maternal smoking or perhaps exposure to pollution will mean that some people will get a poor start. Traditionally, the cause of airway obstruction is thought to be due to cigarette smoking in particular or perhaps other inhaled or environmental substances. This isn't always the case because the early life experiences may mean that people start off with low expectations and subsequently decline. So as time goes by, the number of cases of COPD that relate solely to uh, cigarette smoking is declining as a proportion. And early life experiences or other environmental exposures become more important. In the UK, we estimate that we have about 3.7 million people who have got COPD, but many of those are unrecognized, and perhaps only a quarter of those are known to doctors because they have either not come forward with their symptoms or they haven't had the appropriate measurement made. 
It accounts for about 40,000 deaths per year across the UK and a large number of hospital admissions. It accounts for about 1 million bed days. So it's a significant burden on our health system, not only as a long-term chronic disabling disease, but also one that has frequent flare-ups, which we call exacerbations, some of which may end up in hospital. So if you have a patient, I guess you might want to do some tests. Are there any new tests or changes in how we should test for or monitor the disease? Well, I think the first step is to recognize that they might have the condition. One of the sorry things about this condition is that much of it goes unnoticed until quite a late stage. Approximately 10 to 30 percent of patients may not have their condition recognized until they end up in hospital with an exacerbation. So in terms of testing, I think it's very important that this is done on suspicion. And the key test to help define COPD is to demonstrate the presence of airway obstruction with a test called spirometry where you blow into a machine and record the FEV1 and the vital capacity. The FEV1 is the volume of air that someone can blow out from a full breath in one second and the vital capacity is the amount that they can blow out in total. The ratio between those tests is obstructive if it's less than 70%. There is some argument over the, whether we should use a fixed figure like 70% or the lower limit of normal, but it doesn't really matter because I think that this is the first step in identifying people who've got airway obstruction. It's very important that this is subsequently verified by conducting spirometry, which uh, is performed by somebody who's qualified to provide diagnostic quality spirometry. Okay, and besides spirometry, are there any other important tests that are are needed to diagnose or or monitor the disease? The demonstration of irreversible post-bronchodilator airway obstruction is the key diagnostic criteria. If airway obstruction is not present, then clearly they don't have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. But there are other causes of airway obstruction like asthma or bronchiectasis. So it is the starting point, really. And if the clinical picture does not fit with the obstructive spirometry, perhaps in a non-smoker or someone with other features of asthma or cough and sputum, then perhaps an alternative diagnosis might spring to mind. Uh, It's always a good idea to do a chest X-ray in people who you suspect might have COPD simply to rule out other coexisting illnesses and particularly to exclude lung cancer if that may be present. Okay, thank you. And is CT scanning required in certain groups of patients? or? Well, the CT scanning is very useful uh, for people perhaps with more advanced COPD because it can identify emphysema with some confidence and can identify other coexisting conditions like bronchiectasis. So... CT scanning does tend to be used later on in the process, perhaps, when when someone with COPD is not behaving as they might or if further treatments are required. So CT scanning is important, but possibly more at a management stage than a diagnostic one. The scan does not diagnose airway obstruction. It simply identifies perhaps a cause for it. 
Okay, great. Thank you. And and moving smoothly on to management then, I wonder, are there any recent changes to treatment of the stable patient, assuming you, you have a patient with stable COPD? Well, there are a lot of things which are effective in COPD. Clearly, the condition is not curable, but it is treatable. And simple things work well. So important things for people with stable COPD are firstly around smoking cessation. If they stop smoking, then their rate of decline of lung function will halve. So it's very important to get that in at the beginning and people may need professional assistance to help to quit smoking. Other simple things like flu and pneumonia immunization can have an impact on on exacerbations and also advice around physical inactivity. Keeping fit is very important because the disability that results from COPD is compounded by loss of physical fitness and skeletal muscle deterioration. So as well as that advice, other important treatments include drug treatment, pulmonary rehabilitation, the design and self-management education will all help patients manage their condition. As far as inhaled treatment is concerned, none are really disease-modifying, but they do address both symptoms and exacerbations. So we use bronchodilator treatments for symptom control, uh, short-acting bronchodilators, long-acting beta agonists and um, anti-muscarinic agents, inhaled corticosteroids, and perhaps oral theophylline derivatives in in addition. So labalamas, or long-acting beta agonists and long-acting anti-muscarinic agents, come in combination so that people get a pretty good go at the inhalers straight off. The advantage is that they have fewer inhalers to deal with. The second advance perhaps coming is is the combination of inhaled steroids into a labalama or a so-called triple inhaler. So those patients who will be receiving inhaled steroids might still only require a single device to take all their treatment. Now, this has a, obviously has a convenience factor, but it also has an environmental impact in as it allows us to cut down greenhouse gas exposure and the environmental consequences of a lot of uh, plastic. So we may be able to reduce the actual number of inhalers, but the effective ingredients remain. There's been a change in the way that we approach treatment now because we recognize that not every patient is the same. Patients with emphysema, for example, will get more benefit from bronchodilators and perhaps combinations of bronchodilators, so-called dual bronchodilators. And not everybody will benefit from inhaled corticosteroids. So we're moving now to a more focused uh, approach to patients where those that have got an asthma-like component will receive inhaled steroids and bronchodilators. Those who are more uh, bronchitic or bronchiectatic will be probably better off with some long-term antibiotic treatment, macrolides. And patients with emphysema probably should not get inhaled corticosteroids at all because there are harmful consequences, particularly with regard to non-fatal pneumonias. So we're becoming much more stratified in our approach to um, patients with COPD. You can't put them all in, in, in one basket. Okay, thank you. That's really helpful. And I guess a a key question is, how can you tell what type of COPD somebody has? Is that through spirometry or...? 
we're developing tools to do that, but there's a lot of interest, for example, around um, eosinophils, both in, in blood eosinophils and perhaps in sputum as well, to guide the patients that might have asthma and COPD overlap. Uh, so those with small airways disease and wheeze or and the presence of eosinophilia are likely to do well with inhaled corticosteroids, for example. Patients with cough and sputum who may or may not have uh, bronchiectatic changes on their CT scan may benefit from long-term macrolide antibiotics. And patients with emphysema who have got heterogeneous emphysema, that is, it's worse in one part of the lung than another, on CT scan may benefit from uh, a lung volume reduction technique, either surgery or, more recently, the introduction of endobronchial valves. Okay, great. Thank you. That's really helpful. And moving away from drugs towards pulmonary rehabilitation, is that for all patients potentially? Pulmonary rehabilitation has turned out to be the most effective treatment for patients who are disabled by lung disease, Uh, not just for COPD, but perhaps other chronic conditions as well. And the traditional format of a pulmonary rehabilitation program is to provide uh, physical exercise training and disease education and self-management education. And these are usually outpatient programs that may take uh, six weeks or so to complete. And as a result, patients have improvements both in their exercise capacity and their health status and symptoms. There's also some suggestion from the national audit, too, that this reduces the frequency of exacerbations and also may may reduce the number of readmissions to hospital. Uh, we don't think it has much effect on mortality, but there's always a, a, a possibility. Now, one of the problems about these pulmonary rehabilitation programs is that although they're extremely effective, they don't reach everybody with the condition. So only a small proportion of patients in the national audit, for example, something about 13% actually completed pulmonary rehabilitation because they were either never referred or they um, dropped out or didn't understand what was involved or perhaps more importantly that there isn't sufficient capacity in the country to cater for their needs. So one thing that we do need to do is to improve access to pulmonary rehabilitation and to improve capacity. That said, the rehabilitation, formal rehabilitation program is intended to deal with people who have got significant disability. Uh, that's an MRC grade perhaps of three or more people who are, whose walking is limited by breathlessness. There are many patients with COPD that have had spirometry and had the condition identified earlier on, but don't yet have that uh, significant level of disability. Their need may be different in that they require much more in the way of uh, educational advice and self-management education, helping them to take responsibility. So the spread of pulmonary rehabilitation as a discipline is widening to involve educational programs, perhaps things that can be delivered outside formal practical programs across the internet or in paper manuals. It's a broader scope, but the the bottom line is that it's a, a very effective treatment, but only available to a few at the moment. Okay, great. Thank you. And keeping on with non-drug treatments, does diet play a, a role? You mentioned skeletal muscle mass loss. 
I think there have been quite a few attempts at looking at nutrition. Uh, it's a problem at many levels. Early life events around nutrition will have an impact on lung development and subsequent lung function in later life. People who've got bad lung disease also find it difficult to eat, particularly if they're breathless. The eating makes them more breathless, so they end up losing weight. So the stereotypical patient with emphysema is very thin and their muscle mass is lower in addition. So one of the rationales for exercise training is to rebuild that muscle mass, and clearly that needs nutritional advice in terms of calorie intake and protein intake to, to achieve that. I don't think the interest a few decades around, ago around the burden of carbohydrate loading and other dietary manipulations has really had a lot of effect. The main thing is getting calories in. The big problem these days is that many patients with COPD have their condition compounded by obesity. They may have abnormal lung function, but part of their breathlessness comes from the extra weight that they're carrying. And this is more of a problem now than the sarcopenia and weight loss that occurs in patients uh, previously with emphysema. Okay, thank you. That's really helpful. And one final recent advance. You mentioned lung volume reduction surgery. I I wonder what types of patients and what circumstances might that be helpful? Um, in patients with um, advanced emphysema, the, the nature of their breathlessness uh, is often mechanical and it relates to what's called dynamic hyperinflation. That is that their, their lungs are big and the respiratory muscles geometry is disordered so it's difficult for them to breathe in any way. But once they start to move and their ventilatory requirements increase, that hyperinflation gets worse, so-called dynamic hyperinflation. The theory is that if you can trim the lungs down to size to some extent, then the mechanics will improve and that dynamic hyperinflation will be reduced. This theory was tested several decades ago now where in emphysema where parts of the lung are worse than other parts, if those bits are chopped out and the lung, is re lung itself is reduced in size, then the chest wall mechanics become more favorable and people become less breathless and can do more. It obviously doesn't cure the emphysema, but it simply rearranges things so it's more comfortable to breathe. So the traditional approach to that is uh, surgery. Uh, and that was initially done through a formal thoracotomy. More commonly these days, it's done through uh, video-assisted thoracoscopy. So there's been quite a, a large uh, research series uh, going over, back over decades now demonstrating that this can make a difference in carefully selected patients, i.e. those that have got big lungs, hyperinflation, that have got local emphysema, or so-called target areas, and people who've got established disability. So those, these people would be considered by a lung volume reduction team or MDT uh, as potential candidates for surgery. What's happened more recently is that um, other methods have developed for achieving lung volume reduction, and these include predominantly valves, but also a number of other technologies like coils, steam, glue. I think we're fairly clear about where the, where the valves fit in, they may be suitable in some patients, but they don't suit all because patients may have what's called collateral ventilation where the air goes around, around a different part of the lung and the valves don't result in a volume loss behind it. 
So at the moment, the two favoured techniques are surgery or valves where those might be applicable. And each patient should be considered on their merits by a multidisciplinary team that includes a thoracic surgeon as well as physicians and rehabilitation specialists. Okay, thank you. That's very helpful. Moving on to pitfalls and errors in the diagnosis and management of this disease. What are the common pitfalls that you've seen in your experience? The major causes of airway obstruction are asthma or COPD, but there are also other conditions that result in airflow obstruction like bronchiectasis or central airway obstruction from tumours or, for example, goiter and tracheal obstruction. So it's very important to take a a good history. If someone has never smoked and they have a family history of asthma and they wheeze intermittently, then uh, you're thinking more asthma. If they're middle-aged and they've smoked and they've got cough and sputum, then COPD is perhaps more likely. If they've got cough and sputum uh, from an early age following pneumonia or whooping cough, then clearly you're thinking bronchiectasis. Um, Other differentials include occupational lung disease, so it's very important to take an occupational history as well. Minors, for example, are coalface workers were at risk from COPD, but there are other occupations as well where this might be a factor or contributing factor. Those are the major pitfalls, but in the old days, and perhaps in your days as a house officer, Virtually anybody who had breathlessness was described as having COPD without the appropriate test. So quite often, patients are labelled as having COPD where they may have a restrictive disorder, like pulmonary fibrosis, or a constrictive one where they're simply just overweight. But because the lung function is abnormal, not necessarily obstructive, they'll get labelled as that. So there are a few pitfalls, uh, but we ought to be getting better at uh, being more accurate in the diagnosis of all lung diseases. Okay, great. Thank you. And I wonder what other questions besides the ones that we've been through so far do you typically get asked about COPD by doctors and, and what are the answers to these questions? One is the role of transplantation in, in lung disease. Um, I mean, clearly, Transplantation is an option in in advanced lung disease of any sort almost. But about a third of lung transplants done in the UK are for patients with emphysema. It does offer an option for some, but the number is very small, less than 200 lung transplants a year. So given the totality of patients with COPD, it's not a significant treatment option in many Another question I get asked is, why are some people more vulnerable than others? I mean, the the truth is that only a small fraction of people who smoke develop COPD. And there is an element of vulnerability in this, some of which we know about. The genetic influence of alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, for example, is, is the most notable example where there is a familial risk and patients may develop COPD at a very early age. There are almost certainly other genetic and environmental influences that we don't know about or aren't as well characterized because you clearly see families of people who are susceptible to developing COPD, usually with cigarette smoking as a cofactor. There is a legacy of of COPD perhaps left over from many decades ago where there is a feeling that nothing can be done. There is a nihilism about identifying the condition, but 
I mean, what I would say is that if you don't identify it, you certainly can do nothing about it. But there are so many treatment options now, so many treatment pathways that can improve the individual patient's life that it really is imperative that we move the diagnostics to an earlier stage in the condition so people are identified and characterized early, not only because they can have the right treatment, but because early diagnosis also allows you to reduce other risk factors that related to other conditions like um, cardiovascular disease, for example, because they share the same initiators. One other aspect which I think is particularly important is that COPD is um, a chronic disease and it affects older people and there are other conditions which also affect older people. So COPD particularly is associated with other comorbidities, usually cardiac disease, metabolic conditions, obesity. You have to be aware when you're dealing with, with a patient with COPD that they're likely to have other things as well and that you need to address those things. So if the breathlessness seems out of proportion, then cardiac failure might well be a coexistent illness. The other important thing is around frailty, which is not quite the same as comorbidity. In uh, people with progressive breathlessness become frail, and the frailty is part of the condition, and it may be that, that although they get uh, an exacerbation with some breathlessness, it is the frailty which often leads to them being admitted to hospital because they are no longer able to look after themselves. So frailty and comorbidity is an important aspect. Okay, thank you. That's really, really helpful and comprehensive. And last question, if you had one single piece of advice to give to a doctor or other healthcare professional about COPD, I wonder what would it be? Well, I'm going to give you two bits of advice. One is around having a low threshold for doing spirometry. If someone comes into a practice and they've had two or three lower respiratory tract infections or had a persistent cough, then just do the spirometry. It's very simple to do. You can detect early disease, which allows you to, to um, give them the best advice. The second bit of advice is that always ask about smoking and advise because people who aren't challenged by their doctors about smoking will feel that they perhaps don't need to attempt stopping. Okay, thank you very much, Dr. Morgan. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Learning and look at the content on COPD and other respiratory diseases. Thank you once again.